This episode is brought to you by Murrinjai Water Drilling, a family-owned and operated team of fully licensed, insured and experienced drillers in the construction, mining and water services. They are licensed to drill and service in Queensland, the Northern Territory and Western Australia. They ensure all water bores are installed correctly and professionally first time, every time. Learn more at murrinjaiwaterdrilling.com.au or find them on Facebook. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. So often, stories about Outback Australia revolve around people working on the land. But not everyone who lives in the Outback wears a big hat and cowboy boots. Renee McBride lives in Alice Springs, Australia's red centre. It's a world away from the Housing Commission in Sydney where she spent her childhood. Renee's story is unlike any I've ever come across. At the age of six, she learned that her father, who had been absent her entire life, wasn't working away, but indeed serving a prison sentence for murder. Her relationship with her young mother was turbulent at times, which she was yet to realise was part of a cycle within her family. It's easy to imagine how Renee's life could have turned out. What's harder to wrap your mind around is how it did turn out. Today, Renee is the author of two best-selling memoirs, House of Lies and Unravelling Us, and by day she works in the Child Protection Unit as a social worker. In this episode, Renee shares the path that led her to this role and what working in child protection is really like. And of course, I started our chat by asking Renee what she was like as a child. I was a very curious child. I was always asking questions and always asking my grandparents, but why? Why is it like that? You know, yeah, very curious and... I had a lot of attention from my grandparents in particular. So, yeah, in many ways I was quite uh, spoiled for attention and just, uh, you know, had um, people watching me on demand, like for concerts and, you know, I put on shows and as an only child it was, um, yeah, I had mostly my grandparents' undivided attention. And so that was really lovely. I was really imaginative and would go off and play for hours just in my own make-believe games and really just, um, yeah, and I love to read. So I was always off in my own own world. You grew up in Sydney, which is a world away from where we are today in Alice Mm. Springs. What was it like growing up in the city? 
Well, I kind of had my life split into two. So um, during the week, I was usually with my mum and we lived in like a, a little one bedroom apartment a lot of the uh, most of the my childhood. Um, we shared a bedroom and it was kind of like in this sort of lower socioeconomic street with heaps of kids. I loved it. My mother hated it. <laughs> and there was lots of kids around always and, you know, kind of uh, legs stinging with dirt from being out playing until, you know, parents called you in. And then on the weekends, I was with my grandparents in the uh, housing commission towers over at Redfern. And I loved that too. <laughs> like there was always lots of kids around and yeah, we were kind of right in that, in the city, but there was, you know, a lot going on around those towers and not always kind of safe and things like that. But it was, um, yeah, it was it was fun because it was always teeming with kids and lots of people willing to play with me. Were you aware that you were living in that sort of socio – I mean, as a child, nobody really knows the word socioeconomic, mm. or let alone its meaning, but were you aware that you were in, I guess, more of a disadvantaged area or that that was the, the kind of group you were in? I don't think I was aware until I went to school and realised, like, other kids didn't share bedrooms with their mothers and – Maybe I think maybe as I was a little bit older, I realized, um, that the towers were at, at Redfern, the housing commission towers were maybe, um, yeah, that there was not always kind of, it, I guess I learned it wasn't always safe to just be, Oh, could I go to the park by myself? And the answer was always no, because you know, there was like lots of different types of characters around Redfern back in those days too. And, um, yeah, so probably not when I was really, really little, but as I got older, I, I sort of started to know, yeah. Did there ever come a shift where you, once you realised what you had and then what was out there that you wanted more or were you quite content with what you and your mum and your grandparents had and were able to make? Yeah, I think I was always spoiled for attention, like I said, with my grandparents. So, I, I felt like I was pretty lucky and, uh, I think I was, <laughs> I kind of think of, um, myself as like the most spoiled, um, poor kid around at that time because, you know, my grandparents particularly just used to, um, adore me and would save up all their pension money and things like that and take me to like, you know, Disney on ice or things like that. So yeah, I didn't really, I knew that, um, I knew that my mum was different from all the other mums because she was so young. And so, you know, kids at school would be like, oh, your mum's so young or is that your sister or, you know, things like that. So I knew that relationship was different but not so much the one with my grandparents. Yeah, but with mum it was it was different and there was that, why is your mum so young? Why don't you guys have a car? Why do you share a bedroom with her? Um why uh, your shoes always gaping open, <laughs> those types of things. That was probably more the the realisation. Can yeah. you tell me a bit about your mum and dad and, and what was this age difference between you? So my mum uh, met my father. She uh, had a really tumultuous relationship with her own mother and um, ran away from home. And then she was living on the streets of King's Cross and met my father when she was 15 and uh, I think he was about 18 at the time and they kind of fell in love. She had seen him at um, a video arcade and, and knew some mutual friends and then they kind of got together 
and um, she fell pregnant with me not long after. I think at that time they had resolved that, okay, well, we're going to have this baby. We better kind of clean up our acts and, you know, get off the streets and get jobs and get sober and things like that. And then one night they were sort of, I think they were squatting at a place and um, the police busted in and arrested my father. And I guess that, that changed the course of that whole hope for a new beginning for either of them. So what did they arrest your father for and what happened with your mum after that? Well, my mum was left in that room uh, all by herself, pregnant at 15 and um, wondering what was going on. And he was arrested for murder. I guess that at, from that point ensued a whole uh, court process and, and um, trial and all of those things. So as I was growing inside her, she was going to court and having to, you know, make statements and yeah, and, and he was convicted of uh, two murders. And, um, and then shortly after uh, I was born. And she mm. hadn't been aware of this beforehand? Like had this all happened before they met? I think it had happened at the time that they were together and she just had no idea. So, you know, one night they weren't together and, and that had happened. And she, she basically just, yeah, was shocked entirely. And, and I remember her saying, um, at the time, like, obviously it's a, a mistake. Like it wasn't true. And, um, she did kind of stand by him through that whole process of the, the trial and, in fact, they stayed together after I was born for for a short time. Hmm. And so what was your relationship with your dad growing up? Well, I didn't really have a relationship with my dad as far as I could remember when I was um, a, a baby, um, but I used to have phone calls with him um, when I was at my grandparents' house, but my mum never knew about that. So on Saturdays, every weekend I would go to my grandparents' he would call. And I always thought he was working at Cotty's Cordial, um, which is why I couldn't see him or have those, you know, um, interactions. And I, I, I remember asking quite a lot, like all the other kids have a dad. How come I don't get to have a dad properly, like, or see you or any of those things? And then when I was six, on one of these Saturday night calls, he had just decided that he would just tell me the truth and just said, oh, look, you know, I know you think that I work for Cotty's Cordial, but actually I'm in, in jail for murder. And um, I just burst into tears and my grandparents had no idea that he was going to tell me. So they were like, what's, what's he just said to her? Like, why is she crying? And I remember my grandmother taking, you know, the old landline phone and the cord stretching and her going to, to the kitchen and um, trying to have a private conversation while my grandfather was trying to calm me down. And, you know, what, what have you said to her? And, you know, of course um, they said, uh, why did you tell her this? And then they had to explain, they had to call my mother and explain, A, that I had been talking to my father and B, that he just told me the truth um, as a six-year-old. And, um, yes, she had to come racing over and, you know, they all went into crisis mode of how are we going to trust her with this secret and um, and trying to kind of, I guess, do some damage control around that truth reveal. 
That set of grandparents, was that your mother's parents or your father's parents? It was my mother's mum and her second husband. So not my mother's biological dad, but yeah, they'd been together since my mum was nine or also, so, so that's yeah. quite incredible that they wanted you to have that relationship with your dad. I feel like it would be pretty easy for them, especially because he wasn't their child and the situation he was in to be like, you know, to kind of stick with what your mum was doing and try and keep him out of your life to some extent. Totally crazy that she – it was driven by my, my nan. My grandfather, he didn't want any part of that. He was just kind of going along with whatever my nan said. Yeah, he kind of just tried to do the support role. Um and let my mum and my nan kind of work things out. Uh, but yeah, it, it is really odd. And it's something that I've reflected on quite a bit. Like, I guess they had such a tumultuous relationship, my mum and my nan, that when I look back at it, I wonder if it almost was in, in spite in some ways, because it did drive quite a, a wedge between them. And there was already quite, you know, quite a, quite a tough relationship for them. And when you say your mum had to come over, in my mind, when I think of you as a six-year-old child at your grandparents and your mum coming to pick you up, I just have this vision of a middle-aged woman, you know, maybe in her 30s. But when I just did the math in my head, your mum would have been 21 at the time. Yeah. Like she's still a baby herself. Oh, she was totally – I remember her very clearly. She was dressed to go nightclubbing out with her friends and, you know, had the bright red lipstick on and – all her like looking amazing, high heels, all of this. And her boyfriend had driven her over and, um, yeah, it was quite, it was quite an evening, a uh, bit of a spectacle. And my nan used to have this gra- uh, round, uh, dining table. And I remember us all sitting around it and, um, having to kind of hash out this conversation of what, you know, um, I could never talk about it, you know, never tell anyone because, you know, there would be severe judgment and it was a big secret. So there was, yeah, it was um quite a turn from, you know, a, just an innocent phone call on a normal Saturday um, night. And yeah, it really um changed that course of my childhood, but also my relationship with my mum. Yeah. I just, it's, it's a big leap to go from dad makes Cotty's cordial to dad's in prison for murder. As a six-year-old, do you know what murder is? I just really was upset about him not working for Cotty's Cordial. That was um, probably the biggest thing. And also because every time we had a phone call, after the phone call, I would watch Young Talent Time. And so I also didn't get to watch Young Talent Time that night. So those were the two things that he doesn't work for Cotty's Cordial and I can't watch Young Talent Time because my mum's here and that's weird because she would never come over to my grandparents like that. Yeah, so that kind of was all off kilter and then, yeah, it was just um slowly just I remember testing like, oh, could I tell this friend or could I tell that friend? And they were like, no, you can't tell anybody ever. Otherwise they won't like you. You won't be able to go to their houses or have play dates. And, and that's a lot of pressure for a six-year-old. So I really just started to kind of get that sense of like, okay, well, the truth is not allowed to be told, which means like, oh, that's my dad. Like people won't like me and I have part of that in me. So, yeah, I think it just was the marker of um, a shift in my identity and, and really just believing that I couldn't ever tell anybody the truth. That's a huge thing for a six-year-old to take on board. Mm. 
That's yeah. massive. So what did the rest of your childhood and I guess early adult years look like and how did that play out once you had this big watershed moment as a six-year-old? It, I think at home it really changed my relationship with my mum. In many ways it kind of entwined us together so that we were more like sort of like sisters or, or like co-conspirators or, you know, things like we weren't like a normal mother and child after that. So, you know, she had had a lot of um, kind of trauma in her own childhood and, and tough times on the street and then obviously everything with my father. So we would stay up late and she would play the play records and drink a lot and um, tell me all her secrets. And I felt that that was kind of like, oh, I'm really important to her and we were really bound together. And so I guess that changed our relationship a lot like that. And it made me feel like in many ways over the years that I was the only one who could kind of calm her down when she would go into her deep depressions. If she would fight with boyfriends or or partners, it was usually me to go and calm her down. And I kind of became really skilled in that. In terms of my own life at school and things like it just made me feel like I always had to keep my guard up um, because of course people say like oh well where's your dad or you know things like that and I kind of had to work out a line or you know a story and stick to that and it just kind of started to eat away sometimes at me. And then later I started, my, my nan took me to see him a couple of times in, in prison. And I guess that kind of also kept changing who I was and how I felt about it because there were some pretty big moments of going inside a big, you know, maximum security prison as a small child and just feeling like the walls were kind of closing in on me and there's all these guards around and um, with guns and then there's this man who's like, I'm your dad and I want to hug you and I was just not wanting any part of that because it felt so intimidating and scary. So I guess from all angles my world was changing and I was kind of trying to find my feet and a lot of the time I think I just, yeah, hid in books and tried to like create this persona of like everything's okay and, you know, um, I started kind of just thinking a lot about getting good grades at school and just when I would leave home, yeah. I feel like as children we can see the world very black and white, like mm. there's there's a real dichotomy, like it's either good or bad. And so if your dad was firmly in that bad category because he was imprisoned, whereas mm. before he'd been in the good one, do you then, you know, like we're so, um, you know, like a, a product of our parents or that's mm. what we told at times, did you ever wonder like, oh, well, if dad's bad, you know, and not no shades of grey there, just bad, like does that mean I'm bad? Yeah, there was a time I think – I think I, I struggled with both my parents actually because I knew that my dad was bad because he was in jail. So that was kind of obvious. Um, even though I guess I was still led to believe by my family, like that it was kind of something that had gone wrong. You know, I didn't really know the full truth until I was a teenager and I kind of went and explored that by myself. Um, looking up old newspaper articles and things like that where I really kind of got the facts. 
but I also, so yeah, I, I felt that. And I also knew that, you know, my mum was a teenage mum and that, you know, we weren't exactly the same as all the other families. So, you know, that was also conscious for both my parents that, um, I kind of had to always toe the line, be, um, be likable because I kind of had these other things that were less than, I guess, um, two other kids. Yeah. So I felt like I probably had to make up for that and, you know, be a really funny person and, you know, get good grades and try and, um, just be this kind of cookie as much as I could be, be this cookie cutter kid because all the rest of my life kind of didn't meet that criteria of normal. Growing up the way you did, and I don't want to put like a, a brush stroke on it and say it was bad or less than or that you went without because, you, as you said, you know, you were doted on by your grandparents. You had a really close relationship with your mum. Yes, you grew up in sort of, you know, the a lower socioeconomic area but it, and, and maybe sometimes, like you said, there were some issues with your shoes or bits and pieces like yeah. that. But for the most part, it sounds like a lot of your needs were met. Mm. Um, but it, I can imagine that or, or my line of thinking is that, well, when you finally get to an age where you can go um, and choose what you want to do with your life, that you perhaps would want to get as far away from that as possible. But you actually went down the route of becoming a social worker. Mm. So how does that come about? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't know <laughs> how I got here. Why did I do this? Um, actually, I really wanted to be a lawyer for a long time and – you know, uh, I started out doing law and then it just wasn't for me. I, f- I like to say as a kind of summary of, of that time that I found out I was too nosy to become a lawyer, uh, and just stick to the facts. Cause I really do love to, you know, dig down and get to know people and their stories and things like that in a, in a much deeper way. Um, and so I guess, look, I feel like now it seems like I clearly became a social worker because of my own, my, my upbringing. Um, it seems like it didn't seem like that I was doing that at the time. But, um, now when I'm working, I think, well, multiple things, I think, gosh, it would have been great if, um, my mum had a social worker when she was going through a pregnancy and a trial, a murder trial and all of those things when she was a kid. Or what if both my parents engaged with a social worker when they were living on the streets? Or even if I had a social worker when I was a kid and found out this stuff, like, you know, I do think social workers can make a a difference as lots of the helping professions can. And I think there's a different attitude to that now too, people realising the value of talking about, you know, things that are really tough and traumatic so that they don't sort of sit with you and um, keep pulling you back to that point in your life, which I also like to say that I kind of prepared for being a social worker since I was born because, you know, in many ways that was my role with my mother was to support her. And in fact, even as a, you know, child living on the, on the streets and choosing to have the baby against a lot of people saying, give her up for adoption or have an abortion or lots of these things. You know, she always said she kept me because she wanted someone to love her. And so they're, big shoes to fill, but it also in that role meant that I had to support her and, um, 
kind of do a lot more um, things than your average child. So I was always kind of good at reading her emotions and trying to support her. So I, I kind of feel like that maybe is what led me into social work and maybe that desire to help people when they've really struggled through things because I've kind of been doing it since I was six. I just don't know how you had anything left emotionally in the tank to become a social worker after just managing your own life. Like I feel like it could be something that if you grow up in a pretty happy-go-lucky household and you've got these, you know, rose-coloured glasses on about what the world could be and I'm going to go help people and you've got all that energy, you know, but I feel like you. it sounds like you've had to, you know, your whole life spend so much energy um, just maintaining the status quo and, and getting by that then you still have something left to give back in that space. I think there are a, a couple of the rose-coloured glasses social workers and I always wonder, like, how did you get here? Uh, but I think for the most part, like a lot of people who come into social work and helping professions, are, you know, have a bit of their own story behind them and that makes them see the hope in people and believe, like, actually, you know, we can make a difference and people can get through it. The, the trauma or the struggles that they're experiencing. Yeah. Cause I, I feel like that for me, that, um, kind of background gives me that th- there's a speck of hope for everyone and what happens with that. It can be nurtured or cultivated. And sometimes when you're in those really deep, dark places and experiencing great trauma, it can just take one person to a great teacher or a great social worker, a great nurse or psychologist or something like that, or even just a great friend sometimes who say something that just makes you have a kind of a ha moment or makes you believe like, no, I can get through this or, you know, yeah, that can make a difference. So maybe that's, I think, what inspires me. So, aside from knowing you and um, some of my old college roommates were studying social work when I lived in the States, but my entire understanding of social workers and what the job is has come from TV and movies. <laughs> so, do you think you could um, explain to us, to me and the listeners, what, I guess a bit in a nutshell, what the role is, which I know that's a big challenge to say in a nutshell, but also, I guess, how it works. I guess in the movies, what we tend to see is, you know, if a child's found neglected or something, you know, um, or if somebody wants to adopt a child, the social worker will come and do an inspection and say like, yes, we, we sign you off to be able to adopt this kid or you're fit to parent. Or I guess on say like Grey's Anatomy, if there's something that look, doesn't look right, they'll call in the social worker and they'll come <laughs> in and kind of intervene. But really that's as much as I know about it. And we all yeah. know how accurate TV is sometimes. Well, I guess, look, I think social workers, you know, across different settings look a little bit different, but I guess the main aim of the role is to go in and um, usually help a family or um, children, parents, whoever the the um, client is, even in the hospital, it's the patient um, and perhaps their family, work with them to support them and give them the tools to be able to cope with the trauma that they're experiencing or past traumas um, so that they have um, those tools in the future to use and rely on um, to kind of guide them through 
more difficult times. Um, and I guess it's also to unpack. It could be many different things. Like even I work in the, um, child protection space and I guess it's almost like just having that extra person in when times are really tough to create this foundation to support people when, when things are really challenging and not looking great. And whether that focus is for the child or the whole family unit is really just being there because it's sometimes hard when you're in that deep, dark space to see that light or know what the best way is, particularly in, in the spaces where there's lots of um, intergenerational trauma and there isn't actually a model for you to look at or, a, um, you know, somebody that's paved that way forward for you that you can look at and say, oh, that's what I should do, you know. And again, for me, I think that that was something that's come from my own um, experience because of my grandmother had – uh, a lot of trauma had, you know, a, you know, a violent relationship and left behind four children and then went on to have my mother and then their relationship was fraught. And then my mother's experience, like we had this intergenerational cycle. And I think that that happens a lot. And we don't, particularly previous generations haven't had, um, the tools to unpack that. Um, it's been, we don't air our dirty laundry and, you know, bad things happen to people and we don't talk about it. Uh, and I guess now we know the science and things behind that, that it sits in you and that it can, you know, um, be transferred through generations. Uh, and it, it's, it stays around. So it's something that we actually have to work to undoing, um, and unpacking so that we as humans can sort of go forward without carrying this massive baggage and then transferring it to the next generation. Yeah. Sounds like a very fluid job where no two days are the same. And I'm just thinking, you know, if you're a plumber, like you wake up, you put on your tool belt, you get in your car and you go and you're doing something with pipes and sinks and toilets and you know like <laughs> yeah. it's very you know you look at a job description like it's fairly black and white in a way mm-hmm. but sounds like with social work because I'm like okay well, you're there to support people but how like and and what you know I know from watching the the movies and tv shows that sometimes social workers can be assigned but is it also something that say if I needed help now if I had kids could I call and it's a government service, isn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. is it always just they're kind of put on people or could you be like, I need help and request a social worker? Like, it just, it doesn't seem as black and white as say being a plumber or a It's definitely not or- black and white. Any social, will say, social worker will say that if you have a plan for your day, you can guarantee it, none of that on the plan will go. Mm-hmm like will happen it is it's very much a reactive job particularly well for in child protection it is I think that um you could have a social worker work with you if you needed to but not where I work ours is really for child protection it's really the bottom of the line and that's when it's like statutory involvement and and I guess we have different sort of workloads and response times to different kind of priorities, which are part of our structure, I guess. So, yeah, we respond to things that are the most urgent. Sort of like, look, the first responders are always um, in, you know, ambulance and police. And then when there's children, then 
it would be us if there's a, yeah, you know, a, yeah. a trauma. So it is very different depending on where you're a social worker. Um, but the child protection space is very reactive, um, in terms of this has come in right now. Let's respond right now. Yeah. Yeah. So is it sort of a, would the bulk of the work be, like you said, in that statutory space where there's some kind of legal aspect involved, whether say it's child neglect mm-hmm. or abuse or something that, there's, yeah, some kind of, you can say, again, like black and white in a way that, hey, this is the law and this mm-hmm. is being broken or being breached. Whereas is there also, I guess, on the other end of the spectrum where people aren't quite at that stage yet? Yeah. So there might be, but I guess it, it's one of those. And that's where we would work with, we would do a lot, a lot of work with um, families to hope that um, children don't come into care. Yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. as, as well. So. So did you, I know you work in child protection now. Is that what you were doing when you first started out in Sydney? I've worked in child protection in Sydney as well. And I've also worked in disability and supported housing with young mums in Sydney as well. So yeah, I've kind of had jumped around a few different sectors, but always working with children. Yeah. Has been my passion. I think. Yeah. What prompted the move from Sydney to Alice Springs? Well, a couple of things, I guess. I've been travelling for a few years and then we'd kind of come back to Sydney after a few years away uh, and we'd been in Africa and volunteering there and, you know, travelled around Europe and Middle East and things like that. And then when we got back to Sydney, me and my husband, we were pregnant and then we had one baby and then another baby and then we were going to have a third baby and kind of just felt like, oh, I don't want to stay in this, ironically, the cookie cutter life that I had been trying to put myself into. And we'd been to Alice Springs probably 10 years beforehand and had always thought, oh, maybe that would be a good space for us. And it just came up that there was um, a job uh, and we were going to move from where we were and people were like, you can't just up and leave when you're having a third baby and, you know, to the middle of the country, middle of nowhere. And, I mean, as 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 soon as somebody almost says those words to me, then that's when I'm like, yes, we can. <laughs> Watch me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's that's literally how it came. And we, like most people who moved to Alice Springs, uh, thought we would come for a short time and now it's been a long time and I can't see us going anytime soon. And yeah. so was it a job for you or your husband? That- well, because I was pregnant at the time, it, it was going to be a job for me. I was like, I could, I could do this job. But because I was pregnant, I said to my husband, John, like, actually, you should, you should apply for this job because I'll be going on, on mat leave. And he was like, Oh no. And then so I applied, I got the package and did all that for him. And then, and then he f- said, fine, I'll do the interview. And then he got the job. So I was like, Oh, well, that was meant to be. It's like, I think I've been bullied into this, but <laughs> like, but yeah, then when we, he actually came to Alice before me and the kids to set up and I was packing down our old Sydney life. And I think it was the first week and he was like, I just love this town. So yeah. And here we are still eight years later. So does he work in a similar field to you then? He kind of works in housing. Yeah. yeah so okay. he's, we kind of, they, they go together, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. There's lots of the same 
families and, you know, people that we co-work with but never together. Yeah. And is social work much for much the same no matter where you are in the country or is there sort of, you know, areas where you'd kind of be like, oh, I'd, I'd prefer to be a social worker on let's just say the Gold Coast rather than, <laughs> you know, Western Sydney um, because it's, you know, just – better and less drama I mean, I'm just li- li- picking those places out of a hat but is or is it that no matter where you are you can kind of come across the same level of trauma and yes. dysfunction yeah that's that's it I think that there um, sometimes there are more complicating factors uh, in in some areas like for us here in Alice you know there's complicating factors like distance lack of technology and uh, resources and things like that. But in terms of, you know, in terms of like child abuse and things like that, we see the same things, you know, and that's the world over. It's just that I guess, yeah, there's there's greater complicating factors. Like we have a lot more housing issues, a lot more, um, yeah, travel and distance and geographical issues and um, and financial issues. Like, you know, if you're living very, very remote, then you're paying a lot more for all of your things like food and, and you know, things like that too. So there's just a pile on, I think, in remote areas and, and also for some minority um, groups and, and cultures too. So there is that factor, um, but... Yeah, there's no, um, I used to work in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and there are, you know, there's still extreme child abuse cases there and extreme, um, shocking cases that would occur there. So yeah, I think there is a bit of a misconception that it's just other people and certain people who have issues. And I guess it's, it, it can be, it can be in any home. You just never. You can just never know. Mm. So when you were thinking of somewhere to settle down or to to move the family, mm. it wasn't like looking in a map and going, "Oh, that's it." No, don't want to live there because that that's going to be a terrible place to work because you know that place has a reputation, that town or whatever. It's it's kind of anywhere you could have gone, you, the work's more or less going to be the same. Yeah, I think the work. Reason. Yeah, it it changes. Like in Alice, I mean, look in Alice, there's interesting things. Like I remember uh, laughing. When, um, I was doing some work because they said, Oh, could you fax that through to me? And I was like, Oh my God, who uses fax machines still? And, you know, there's just different things. Mm. Um, yeah, but there's still most of the same sort of challenges. Yeah. I guess they're just exacerbated, uh, for, you know, sometimes like in Alice Springs, there is a lot of complicating factors and across the territory too. We do have, you know, really high, rate of like, you know, um, children, youth, youth justice issues and, and, and youth crime and lots of problems, which stem obviously from families and what's happening in the home. So there are a lot more challenges perhaps here, but each little area has their own unique things and different families and different cultures present different communication challenges as well. So it's never, not interesting work. For listeners who may not be familiar with this area or this part of the world, can you describe the physical and the social landscape within which you work? I guess, you know, for us, 
as social workers in Alice, we cover such a huge geographical area and it's, you know, long three, four, five, six-hour drives sometimes to uh, remote communities. We have a high um, Indigenous population that are kind of living all over and for child protection we respond to all of those, just the same as police or, you know, um, health. So it is unique in that way that we're constantly travelling out to do a lot of different things. For the Indigenous population there's lots of added issues like overcrowded housing, you know, um, there are health issues that often we don't have to look at for non-Indigenous children or families that are still an issue, like, you know, and and that's a big thing for clinic workers, but also streams through to, to our field. So it is a unique um, kind of landscape to work in just because of those things. I mean, not many people would go on a, a, you know, a small aircraft to do an investigation for child protection, but that's some of the challenges and geographical challenges that uh, social workers and health and police and all of those services have to kind of navigate here. So our response times could be different. You know, uh, trying to really support a family through difficult times can be really challenging if they're very far away or if there's lots and lots of family members who all have different kind of needs that, yeah, they're some of the challenges. So I guess what's different here is that the nuclear family that we might see in Sydney with two children and two full-time working parents isn't what necessarily is the uh, typical family composition in remote areas of the Northern Territory. The job here sounds absolutely huge, which I know, I guess, for any social worker anywhere in the world, as we've just said, like, you know, the job is pretty big, but you've got these challenges of going out to the remote areas, but you still have a caseload of of cases in town. Mm. Um, and you've got all these different cultures. And so, you, like you said, there's there might be some cases in, in the Indigenous community, whether that's in town or out on communities, but there's also non-Indigenous people and that and there's so Alice Springs is such a melting pot of people from yeah. whether they're born in Australia or they've migrated to Australia mm-hmm. um, or they've come as refugees. You know, we've got different, I don't know how to say this, you know, colours, shapes, sizes, you know, walks of life. Every, yeah. like it's a big melting pot here, cultures, I guess, as well, like language groups. Um, yeah. There's just so much going on here. And so that's one of the most beautiful things. And, and I think – for a workplace, we have a really multicultural staff composition and certainly for the client composition too. That's, that's the case. You know, sometimes we'll be, you know, working. Yeah. I think that that's it. We, we have all different types of families from all different walks of life. And that, that was the same when I was working in Sydney. And, you know, that's the, the same working. I know this, uh, you know, child protection exists. Canada, Ireland, like UK. I mean, UK is known really in social work, um, I guess, realms of like a huge child protection um, kind of culture and a lot of things are tested out or based, you know, frameworks based on the UK system. So, yeah, I guess that that's it. And, you know, there's this huge... I guess thought about, you know, that wouldn't happen in my neighborhood or that wouldn't happen here. And I guess that is a push of child protection that child 
child protection is everybody's business and, you know, that we're looking out for everybody's kids and things like that because it's not just like there's a huge push with domestic violence to to be, you know, recognising that this can happen to any woman in any relationship even when we don't see that. It's the same sort of thing, you know, there are complicating factors. It does happen, you know, with more disadvantaged you know, communities and, and, but it's prevalent in any family or could be prevalent in any community. So yeah, I think that that is true that we often, or people often think, oh, that only happens to those people or to that community or to this group. But it is an issue that is faced by all communities. I I definitely think that the more you interact with different people and that you're led by those families and those interactions, you know, more you listen rather than kind of dictate, all of those things um, kind of add to your wealth of experience as as a social worker. And social workers, you know, we're not experts. We're there as the extra kind of support and foundation for families. And I think that that's something that almost any old social worker now would say that, gosh, like how different they are to when they first start out. So certainly I would, I would think that, you know, and yeah, you just learn because every single family that we are working alongside, we're really privileged to be in, in that space with them, but we're also learning so much from each family member and, and that is, that is a privilege. Like families go through difficult times, but you know, that we're all human and no one's perfect. And sometimes we do need that extra help to kind of get through something, particularly, you know, when, when life has been really tough or there has been intergenerational trauma and we don't have those tools, you know, mm-hmm. nobody kind of just gives them to us. Especially if then, you know, we're looking at our parents as, as role models. Certainly, you know, that was, that was definitely a panic station for me sometimes. It's like, oh, I don't have the tools. I don't know. Like I, no one gave them to me. <laughs> like, and no one gave them to my mum. And, oh, how do we, how do we do this? Like, you know, yeah, we're not experts. You know, we're not, um, it's like you said, I'm not a doctor who's like, oh, you've got this wrong with you. And now I'm going to, you know, fix it in this particular way that I've learned from a textbook or what have you, or a plumber who's like, oh, yes, I know how to fix this. You know, each family is different and each child's need is different and the way that they, what they, the communication style they might need from us is is different too. And so I guess that's the, the skill comes from being led by each family and each individual um, instead of going in and being like, yeah, one, like you said before, like steps one through five and we're going to fix this. It just doesn't work like that. And so it's really, I guess, a lot about being led and not being in control. And yeah, a lot of the, the work changes and something that works with one family will spectacularly fail with another and vice versa. So I guess it's, yeah, a lot of trial and error and really look, the families are the experts in their own life and our job is to help guide. Yeah. You could have another job where everything is much more clear cut and black and white. Say you're a nurse, the child's sick, you give them the medicine, you do a 
say, a blood test later on. Okay, results show that that infection's gone. Case closed. See you later. Case, like, case closed. Mm. Your job is just so – there's so many nuances and shades of grey and, and there's no clear pathway to get to where you want to go. And then even then, how do you know when you're at where you want to go? Because it's not like, oh, cool, we're happy days. We fixed you. You're gone. Case closed because, you know, you, know, you might – get called back in a week or a month or a year like Hmm. how what makes you want to stay in a job like this rather than just have something that's just so much more you know you can (laughs) go home and 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 turn off from work and 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 just one of those you know very simple not 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 saying it's sorry that the other jobs are simple but you know something that is much more clear cut -cut, yeah I think Look, I just think there's such a need for that and uh, emotional um, intelligence and support and having that being part of an inter- intergenerational cycle myself. It's kind of like, well, if you don't know that you're part of it, if you don't know that there is a different way, then how can you be? different. And I think that, look, I, I can't speak for all social workers, but I feel like that, that little part of, um, hope is what would be deep down inside most social workers because it's, yeah, it can just take that one little seed to be planted to create a change. And I guess, you know, definitely that I have lots of friends who have those concrete jobs that are often like, what is it you do just talking about feelings the whole time or what do you, you know, but I mean, there is a, a valid space for that because if we, we know that if, if, if things aren't, you know, if we don't really acknowledge and process feelings, then they can physically eat, a, eat away at us. And I think that that, that happens for a lot of people when they sideline big things that happen or they look around, particularly when, you know, there might be families or, you know, communities that have, that are sort of soaked in trauma. It's, it becomes the norm and you don't know, like, actually what's happened to me isn't okay. So yeah, I think that that's really important just as a, as a starting point for, children and families to know and and women who who are abused that actually what's happening is not okay and that's a starting point yeah I suppose you must find yourself in so many situations where what you're seeing is the manifestation of something else which is probably the manifestation of something else and Mm. like you said even with you and your mother and your grandmother and what's happened in your lives like it is just this cycle yeah and um, I suppose that's sort of a, a bit of a central theme in your book, Unraveling Us, which is mm. your second book. So without giving it all away, because mm. we want people to go and read the book, can you tell us a bit about what, I guess, what inspired you to write it and, and how you came to write? Well, look, I think, yeah, I realized with, you know, the level of secret keeping in my family, you know, my grandmother had kept this whole other life that she'd had secret. And when she died, I felt like that was this huge weight. We had no idea she had all these other children or any of that stuff. And that was shocking. And I, I can't imagine the pain of bearing that type of secret and carrying it with you until you die. And I guess I saw that again patterned with my mother saying like, we can never tell anyone about your family, your, your dad. We can never tell anyone. You and I are a family. And, you know, it was so far as to say like, you know, when I was, uh, getting married or, you know, like, don't tell anyone about your dad. 
which, you know, as I kind of got older and I was lucky enough to have that seed of just, oh, I don't know, like maybe I can form relationships that actually I will be able to tell the truth and those people will like me for who I am. I won't have to keep this secret till I die. Um, I kind of had that seed and began to kind of think about that and maybe um, hope that I didn't have to keep this big secret because I could also see that, you know, my mum, every time she would um, she would t- want to talk about my dad and that secret every time she would drink. So then she began to drink even more and more because it was kind of like festering inside her, this secret. And I guess I just made this decision that, I did not want to be like either of them and have this burden on me. And if I told people about my dad or I, you know, revealed these other kind of secrets about my family and my life and people chose not to be in my life, then that was a decision for them to make. But I didn't want to have to keep carrying this secret because I could see how much it was eating up my mother. And she never really kind of moved past that, you know, for years and decades really was still like, I can't tell anyone about your father and don't, don't tell anyone. People won't like you. And I think I was about 30 and I was like, this is not true. I'm not, I'm not doing this. (laughs) Like, and I really had hoped to be able to, maybe that's that social worker side of me, try to pull her out of that and believe like, you know what, you're actually good enough the way you are and something that somebody else did 30 years ago shouldn't define you. And, yeah, I kind of, I really believe that and I believe that for lots of people, you know, where they have these traumatic things happen to them or really big life moments and um, feel like they're just never going to get out of it, that, they can shape you, but it doesn't always have to be for the worse. And and as I guess people get older and you see other people experiencing their own challenges in life, you realise that that actually everybody has something happen in their life and, and has to overcome it, whether it be big or small or some people deal with, you know, adversity really well. You know, we read lots of those big memoirs that are like people will overcome, you know, escape the Taliban and, you know, settle here and they've had all of these things happen and, you know, and then there's somebody who just survives their their messy divorce. Like that's all the spectrum of how we deal with different things, but I think it's all within our capabilities to, to do so um, if we have – the foundation and the tools and the support um, and and maybe the guts sometimes. That's something that really stands out to me about your book is that it does discuss adversity and I guess the book really, you know, like I guess at its core is about motherhood. It is your story and your relationship with your mum and your grandmother, but it's not, It's it kind of goes bigger than that about just motherhood in general and relationships, but it's, like you said, with some of those other memoirs, it's not a big grandiose, you know, this is what happened and here's the happy ending and how we overcame everything because there are some happy endings in the book. There are some not so happy endings. And so mm. it's not really t- like um, tidied up in a nice little bow at the end and all wrapped up and like, oh, we had some hard times and then we worked through it and happy mm. days, here we are. Like you kind of leave things unfinished in a way, which is so representative of life though. Yeah. Like you can't always just overcome adversity and then it's it's done and it's, you know, mm-hmm. move on. Um and 
what I suppose in the book where I say that it's not just about your story um, and your motherhood experience and your mother's, you do bring in some other stories um, and anecdotes from your time working in the region as a, as a, in child protection. What made you want to include those stories in the book? Because I think it's it's quite unique and beautiful that you can see that, yeah, there's these um, struggles and challenges happening to these families. That is probably what we think of when we think of child protection and, mm. and social workers, but then also yourself mm. and your family. Yeah. I thought it was um, really important because I think that child abuse is often – well, we w- would say that that it is a syndrome of secrecy and people don't like to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. And as a child, I guess, who was on that cusp of care for my entire childhood and I, I recognise in myself and in the kids that I work with often the similarities between us. You know, mums that I work with often remind me of my mother and I guess that's the, the thing um, – about trauma is that it looks the same no matter whether you're, you know, um, a white girl like me, uh, Indigenous, like, you know, it, it could be any child who has comes from a family with this type of trauma background, the behaviours look the same, you know, and the challenges are the same and the opportunities to kind of escape uh, that cycle is what isn't the same. Um, so, you know, I guess that is something that I was reflecting on in that, you know, people will often say to me like, how, why are you normal <laughs> or why aren't you People have often said, readers have said, how come you're not um, a heroin addict or something like that? And, you know, it's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, for the vast majority, we do get swept up in a cycle. Um, and in the House of Lies, I write about that very nearly being swept up in that cycle myself. And just that it is a kind of almost like a daily choice. It isn't this neat bow where we wrap up the story of like, oh, that's the end of my trauma now, um, or that's the end of my childhood. And now, you know, I'm going to create my own life because we still have all of those things from childhood. I think that was something that I realized, you know, I sort of had that whole goal of like, oh, once I go to university, if I can just make it out, oh, everything will be fine. And I, I write about that in the House of Lies. It's like, oh, man, I was in charge of my own life for just a few months and it all went downhill, even worse than I could have imagined. And, you know, that kind of like led me into a, quite a deep, dark hole because I thought, oh, well, once I was out on my own, well, I wasn't going to be like my mom or my grandmother, but I didn't have any of the tools and I wasn't equipped to deal with the challenges or, and I put myself in unsafe situations because that was what I knew. Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, working in the child pr- protection space, but working as a social worker for the last 20 years, it, even in, you know, working in the disability space, it's like you're seeing these moms, um, and, and children, and the challenges that they're facing and realizing like, well, we're all having to kind of come up with the tools for some, some challenges. And, and that's really hard. And there's big life ups and downs. And, you know, it's, 
it, motherhood can be a lot and childhood can be a lot and the two marry together. But I guess Unraveling Us is focused on like, well, what happens when childhood's been tough and you want to go in down that path of like parenthood, you know, and for me, it, you know, is motherhood and how do I make sure my kids aren't in the same spot that I was in and I'm not just following out the steps that my, you know, the footprints that my mum had left out for me to follow in. Yeah. You write with so much compassion, not just about your own story and your mums and your grandmas, but the the cases that you kind of draw in from your own life and, and your work in Alice Springs or in the Central Australia region and, you know, you've you've changed all the names and, mm. sort of, you know, but there's just so much compassion and it's I find like you've really struck the balance of um, – not laying any judgment and blame and being like, and this is why this has happened and this is what we need to do to fix it and kind of down that path, but also not like, oh, and the world's so amazing and having those rose-coloured glasses mm-hmm. on and we just need to, you know, sing Kumbaya and love each other. And <laughs> like you've, you've kind of found that balance of of telling the story with compassion but not being, well, I guess, you know, sometimes we refer to people in town, they come in with their rose-coloured glasses or we call them greenies or whatever and they just come in and think they can come and fix the world and then, mm. you know, give them 12 months and they're pretty burnt out. And Yeah. So yeah. how do you find the way you've written this story, I guess, is, ob- is obviously a reflection of how you see things. How do you manage yourself in this kind of space that you work in to – be able to still look at all these cases and these traumas that you deal with all the time with compassion and not get burnt out or bitter and twisted or try and be, you know, just force some kind of resolution on it or, or attribute blame and be like, well, this is why it's happened and this is what we need to do to fix it. Well, I just think like, you know, we're all human and we're all capable of making mistakes. And if we think of ourselves on our worst day, it's, you know, we, we've all had those bad moments and sure, maybe some of the, you know, situations that I'm dealing with at work, uh, you know, more extreme, but every person that comes to the table is human, you know, and nobody sets out to be a bad parent. Nobody sets out to be a bad human, you know, and I guess that's the, that's the issue with intergenerational trauma is that, you know, we can't expect people to be good parents if they haven't had that example set forward for them. So, you know, it is very easy to sort of say, oh, that's a, that's a bad dad or that's a bad mom and, you know, things like that. But no, I don't, I don't believe that any human is all bad. And, you know, there are a lot of challenges and yeah, there's no rose colored glasses because any family that comes through to the child protection space is obviously struggling. And that's, what's important. It's not reflective of any type of, um, you know, family or culture or anything like that. It's the families who are coming through, no matter who they are, are struggling and they need our support and they need the tools to be able to move forward. Sometimes that happens for a short time. Sometimes it doesn't happen. And sometimes it happens and, you know, the families go on their way and and things are, are good. Not perfect, but good enough that everybody can get through happily and safely. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just, you know, you have to have that compassion and um, patience and realise, like, it's not a reflection on me whether families succeed or f- fail. I'm just one part of the 
you know, big picture. But yeah, and I can just give my best and then, you know, I wouldn't say that, uh, I don't burn out. There are some days that I, you know, you know, you go home and you cry and you think, what am I doing? Am I making a difference? What's this about? <laughs> like, and other days that you think like, yeah, that was really great. And that family's doing great. Or, you know, it's a definitely a high emotion job and it is a high burnout job. But I guess what makes me not burnout, I guess, is having that balance with my, with my own family too. And having that joy on the outside, it's, it's good to have a balance. And maybe because I am one of the older social workers now is I've learned that. Um, and like I've got four kids. So, you know, I can take stuff home with me, but as soon as I get home, uh, my kids invade that, that space and, you know, I, um, have to be in the moment with them. So I guess it's just, that is a, that is a, you know, walking those two different lines as well. Um, I think it's human nature for us to want to be able to fix things and tie, like, you know, like I was saying before, put that bow on something and tie it up and be like, all right, this is done. Do you, I, I guess I'm thinking with the work you do, there could kind of be two levels. I mean, there's so many levels, but say you've got individual families you work with, but then I'm sure you must have thoughts at some point in time about things that need to happen for the whole system. Cause it's, it's kind of like, I'm, I'm pretty well known for my crappy analogies, but like a leaky <laughs> roof. So like you've got a leak in the roof, you put the bucket there, you patch that roof and then there's a leak somewhere else. And then I feel like, so each family you work with is like that, you know, you, you kind of, you, you fix this one and then another one pops up and another one pops up and it's, it just keeps happening. At some point though, you've got to replace the roof, which I guess is something bigger, you know, whether that's, whether in, in the community or that culture or that, I don't know, or I don't know, the world, like how mm. do you manage to, cause I feel like I would fall my, find myself down the path just being like, oh, we just need to do this and that. And, but uh, especially the way you write in the book, it's, you're not kind of providing these big grandiose solutions because you see how, <laughs> how, um, nuanced it is and it's case by case. But at the same time, do you ever just think, Oh, well, in 30 years time, we're going to be exactly where we are because I might have gotten through to this, this and this family. But every time I kind of help one, another one's going to pop up in its place. I mean, I think that yes, you can get doom and doom and gloom and, and, you know, sometimes get that. That's for me when I would start thinking like that. That's when I know I need a break. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like uh, I need to go out camping. I need to get out and have no phone reception and do that type of stuff. I think there's always going to be families with, um, you know, who need help and, and challenges and, you know, things like that. So I think that that's always been the way. There's not ever going to be a time where every family has all the tools and resources they need in the whole world. That's just never going to happen because of the way, you know, our, you know, political system works and favors, you know, rich over poor or all of those things. And I'm just one little social worker. So, um, I just go to work and do the best I can with the families I work with. And, um, and that's, that's all I can do. I don't kind of have the aspirations to change an entire, you know, system, but, um, I think that it's one little, you know, interaction with a child or a mom or a dad that can make a difference. And, you know, that's, that's how we, you know, how do you eat an elephant? It's one little bite at a time. 
that's what I say to my kids. And I think that's what it's like, you know, if we think about the whole elephant, it's overwhelming. But yeah, I think if we look back 20 years ago that, you know, things have kind of improved and it just takes time and all humans are, are different and all the traumas are different. And I think there is a much greater focus on, you know, mental health and, you know, trauma informed approach approaches and, you know, things have changed for the better and that just takes time to, to spread. We mentioned earlier about the, how Alice Springs is this melting pot of people from anywhere and everywhere. And you moved here with absolutely, well, with your immediate family, your husband Mm. and children, but no other family friend support network Mm -hmm. like you had in Sydney. Um, but here you are still eight years later. Mm. Talk to me about Alice Springs, Central Australia, and I suppose the life you've built here and the community you found. Well, I love, um, that people, I think there's that little sort of saying that people who move to Alice Springs are, what is it? Misfits, mercenaries, or, um, what's the other one? Misfits, mercenaries, and, Missionaries. Yes, that's it. <laughs> like those three. And I think I really love that because I feel like, you know, people are different, uh, you know, drawn here, but something for the non-Indigenous population who, you know, weren't, you know, born and, and bred here, the people who come in are kind of, uh, brought here for all different reasons, but sort of a commonality is that nobody has their extended family or, or most people don't unless they convince them to come as well. Uh, and then so everybody sort of seems to come for this little outback trial or adventure and then so many people just fall in love with this town and something that I – maybe I fall into the, the misfit category, you know, because I've never had this big kind of bustling family And, you know, I've always had that desire to sort of do something a bit different and go somewhere different, um, which is probably what brought me to Alice. But then what I found so amazing is that with all of these people around and this community just has this family vibe, it's like a a web that you become enmeshed in and it's really hard to leave and you have this... um, it almost becomes like a family. It certainly felt like that for me. And I never would have guessed that, you know, um, that I could find and kind of create, uh, the childhood for my, my kids that they have and the relationships that I have and the friendships that I've kind of fostered have almost like become this really big extended family that I never had as a child, as an only child growing up with just my, my mom. And then once my grandparents kind of passed away, like it, it was just, you know, this small little nutshell. And so for me having this, these relationships and like almost like great friends that are like sisters and things like that, it's so full of, um, something that I never grew up with that it's like, wow, this is like this extended family and my kids have friends down the street and can talk to each other on walkie talkies and all of this type of, I guess, um, 
what I imagine like the 60s and 70s childhoods were were like where the, it's a bit free range. And, you know, um, I guess when I first moved here, I really loved taking the kids out to, you know, all the different gaps and playing in the water and just being out of the phone reception and having this simpler life like, you know, they never wear shoes. We could never move back to the city because they can't sit at a table to eat dinner. They won't wear their shoes. They don't um, know how to be in a confined space, uh, I don't think, and I love that. this it The town is infectious. It has, you know, this beauty about it, and I love all the different melting pot of um cultures and people and the talent and the um, creativity, the amazing painters, um, both, you know, who grew up here and are from the land and those who have come in um, and, and made the town their home and the writing community. It's, um, it's such a beautiful place to live. And I think like externally, it's known, maybe it hits the news a lot for social reasons and things, but it does, this town just gets under your skin. Yeah. I got mm-hmm. so caught up in that just then that I was like, I don't even know what my next question is. I'm just like, if I worked for Tourism NT, I'd be hiring you to sell our oh, springs. Like, yeah. The, and I, I, I guess the other thing that was running through my mind, mm-hmm. like it's one of those things, like I was so present in the moment mm-hmm. of what you're saying there, I couldn't think of anything else. But I did have a, a, a little thought trailing through is, just how different your life is today compared to growing up and how it could have turned out. And I guess, like, I mean, if you look back to when you were 15, you probably never thought this is where you'd be and this is how it would all turn out. No. And I do think that a lot when I'm like running the trails around here and, you know, just even, you know, out at work in a a, a remote community or just, um, you know, yeah, at the, the local bake sale, you know, with all the, you know, kids and community around, like it's, um, it's a privilege to live here and to, um, you know, have kind of emerged and evolved over all of these, you know, last 40 years. And I, I feel lucky to be where I am and have the family and the job and the, the community that I'm in. Um, yeah, it feels a far cry. I often think of that, yeah, little six-year-old girl and just be like, phew, thank God we we got through all that. <laughs> and, um, you know, my kids have this book and I often think of this line, tell me about your day today. But in my head, it always feels like, for me, it's like about my life. And, you know, it's like the whole, the line at the end is, the whole wild thing turned out okay. And whenever I read that line to them in this book, I, I feel like that about my life and how, um, I got here, you know, and living in Alice. And I do, I think like, Oh, it's been a lot, but yeah, the whole wild thing turned out okay. This is really like a prime example of you never know how life's going to turn out. And, you know, despite certain, you know, whatever the beginnings are or circumstances people find themselves in, it doesn't necessarily have to dictate. I'm not saying everything is, you know, so going to be so easy to overcome and, but you, you just never know what's going to happen and what's possible. Yeah. I think that, that too, you know, you don't know whether, you know, what, what's ahead and what people, you know, one thing that you could 
you know, hear from a, a person or a line you could read in a book or a, a poem or something like that can just have this impact on, on you and sort of, you know, I think that's it. It's not, um, all the side roads that you go off in life are the, the journey. You don't want to just stay on the highway the whole time. It's good to experience, you, you know, and I don't think there's any, any such thing as just this happy, highway life. It's all the bumps and, you know, side roads and things like that, that make the, the journey a wild ride. Um, some good, some bad. And you, I kind of think it's good to experience the whole breadth of emotions so that when things are good, you're really able to, you know, appreciate that sweet spot when you get there. I think that leads in really beautifully to my final question, which is looking back on your story so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? I think um, that you can create your own destiny and try and really just forge your own, own path. It's not easy. That does sound whimsical. But I think I guess one of the biggest things that I've learned along that way is that self-talk, you know, having that voice in my head just being like, we can, we can do this, you know, we've got to just keep going and things aren't always smooth or easy and no one's just going to offer you that solution. But at the end of the, I can't just, um, you know, you can't, you don't have to walk that same path that's just been set out for you. And I think the other lesson is just that to meet everybody with compassion and, you know, and we don't know what everybody else is, is going through. It's really easy to make judgments and say, Oh, that, that's not good or that person's not good or any of those things. But yeah, I mean, life just can change in an instant for anybody. And, you know, we can all have those, those really tough moments. So I think that, yeah, compassion and kindness for others and yourself. That's kind of what I've, I've learned, you know. And just to keep, keep going. <laughs>